fellow movie friends, and welcome to the Court of Cinema podcast. This is the show where we celebrate and analyze our favorite films. I'm your host, Logan, and every Wednesday, we dive into the deep world of film and TV. In today's episode, we're discussing Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. released in 1968 and is written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. The film is adapted by a short story called The Sentinel written by Arthur C. Clarke. Stanley Kubrick has a very limited filmography compared to other prestigious directors and he explored many genres without mastering any of them in particular. For example, he released The Shining and is now considered one of the greatest horror films of all time and respectively with Full Metal Jacket being considered one of the best war films of all time. And that goes for all the other entries in his filmography. With every genre he touched, he provided a refreshing entry that is prestigiously looked upon. 2001 A Space Odyssey continues this trend in proving that sci-fi is a genre that can be taken seriously and that offers the opportunity to give the audience breathtaking spectacle, while also offering us grand thematic narrative that finds us debating 2001's meeting five decades after its release. The film that exploded my mind about what a film could be came a year after college, in 1968, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. In terms of sound and images and story construction, this film is a groundbreaker. 2001 A Space Odyssey divides audiences. Many think it paved the way for sci-fi, while others believe it's a convoluted mess. 2001 strays away from the common three-act structure with character growth and development. Upon rewatch, I realized that 2001 is more of a science fiction anthology space opera that prioritizes spectacle and grandness over character, taking us through different chapters of human evolution, while also showing us the beauty within the relationship between man and machine. Roughly the first 20 minutes of this film, we see apes in the wild. And it's a pretty bold move by Stanley Kubrick, and on the surface, it's definitely a turnoff for the average moviegoer. But when I watched it for the second time, and I got a deeper look and deeper understanding, I see that it all operates as almost a massive motif for human evolution. I think just in this first 20 minutes, Kubrick uses apes as a vessel to show us the beauty and the horror in humanity. The opening shows the beginning of the Paleolithic era. At the dawn of man, a group of apes colonized a watering hole and are immediately conquered by another group of apes for the resource. Throughout history, we've seen this happen time and time again with nations conquering each other for resources or for land. Shortly after the group of apes was ejected from the water hole, they come across the monolith and immediately they're scared by it and then shortly after they've come to worship it and accept it as their god. Before they utter their first words before they make clothing, tools, they find and accept a god to worship and serve. I think that's pretty deep stuff. The monolith inspires the apes to use the bone as a tool. And with this new tool, they use it to conquer and murder their own for the lost waterhole. With this one tool, they realize that mankind doesn't have to be a victim of nature, but instead an active element in nature and they have the power to overcome nature and also propel them forward into evolution. 
the ape then throws the bone into the air in what's considered the longest jump cut in cinematic history. The bone spins and segues into the spaceship orbiting above Earth. This act of the film acts as more of a prologue to the next chapter, but I feel like it is very, very cool to touch upon because this movie was released before we even put a man on the moon. And how much they got right with space travel, in terms of the ships moving slow, zero gravity, it was groundbreaking at the time. And the TVs and planes, Dr. Haywood Floyd makes a video call to his daughter, the first Skype call in human history probably. It's very, very breathtaking seeing how much they got right with such little knowledge. Watching it today, we're so desensitized to all this because of how common it all is. People taking flights to the moon, well, that's already happening with SpaceX and whatever Bezos is doing over there at Amazon. Also, I love the cinematography of the moon sequence and the way the camera follows the astronauts, the eerie key lighting above the monolith provides such a beautiful tone and atmosphere to this scene. And your responsibilities include watching over the men in hibernation. Does this ever cause you any lack of confidence? Let me put it this way, Mr. Raymer. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. At the heart of this film lies the story of How 9000. This act feels the strongest across the entire film, and so many moments justify Hal for being on the Mount Rushmore of villains in film. Mainly because this act shows mankind's greatest fear, which is losing control of their own creation. Especially seeing how fast AI is changing the world and developing with ChatGBT, Snapchat AI. It's really been almost never this important to discuss this topic. And Kubrick definitely thought of AI in a negative way, seeing how he framed Hal in this way. But upon rewatching it, I sympathize more with Hal than really before. The two astronauts found an error in Hal and believe that they should shut him down because he's defective. While this conversation is underway, we see that Hal was reading their lips the entire time and is fully aware that they intend to kill him, which leads us into our intermission. I love how this sequence is written and how it plays out. Originally, the only person whose life is at stake here is Hal, and they fully intend to kill him, but then... All it takes is Kubrick showing us that Hal is fully aware that they intend to kill him, and he fully intends to defend himself, which leads us into our intermission, building more tension for 15 minutes of silence. And I think for this reason, intermissions should also be brought back into cinema, not even just for the fact that movies can be pretty long, like how Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon is going to clock in at almost four hours long, but just how much it can benefit the story itself. The astronauts intend to kill Hal, and by all means, they have every right to do so. They have the power to do so. But when you look at it from a Hal's perspective, I think you can start to sympathize with him and almost defend him in a way. Because Hal was programmed to complete the mission, and he believes that in his absence, the mission is at critical jeopardy. He goes as far as to tell them, This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. The sequence of conflict is a flawed mirror image of the beginning of the film, 
showing the origins of conflict and mankind. And I love how it sets up the conflict of man versus machine millions of years later. How and Dr. Bowman committing murder for their survival. And in Hal's final moments, we see him begging not to be killed as Dr. Bowman is shutting down Hal. Stop, Dave. I'm afraid. And we also see how he regresses to his final moments of birth singing Daisy Daisy. And the reason for this is because in one of the earliest voice synthesis experiments, Daisy Daisy was performed by an IBM robot. After Bowman kills Hal, we get transported into this Stargate sequence. One of my favorite shots in a sci-fi film, Dr. Bowman traveling to Jupiter and appears in some kind of human zoo, seeing his life unfold within this one room. And in the end, Dr. Bowman is turned into this star baby as he stares onto Earth. The ending to us one has left a lot of room for debate even decades after its release. Stanley Kubrick however, was transparent about the meaning of the monoliths, saying that it's a device sent by an alien species to study human evolution. And in the novel, it's said that after Dr. Bowman turns into the star baby, he flies onto Earth and destroys all nuclear weapons, therefore solving world peace. What makes the ending so smart, in my opinion, is not laying it all in front of our face, not giving us the aliens in any physical form, and not telling us what happens in the end with the star baby, because that would just make it boring. Leaving us with the opportunity to interpret the monoliths and the star baby in infinite number of ways, what the apes meant, what Hal meant, makes it very, very fun to analyze because no one really knows what the right answer is. For all purposes, it was like a silent film with the orchestra enhancing the galactic imagery. 2001 originally had an original score composed by Alex North. Classical recordings were used while editing the film and Stanley Kubrick realized that it was a much better fit. For a film like Star Wars, it makes more sense to include John Williams' iconic score, but for something like this, which pushes character development to the backseat and prioritizes spectacle and bigger picture, it benefits from not having an iconic score. The 70mm aspect ratio has been around for many years. Film like Ben-Hur, Cleopatra, Lawrence of Arabia, all used it before Kubrick. Kubrick used the 70mm aspect ratio to give the audience this space opera spectacle that would have never been accomplished with regular 35mm film. 2001 showed the space opera spectacle that sci-fi can offer, which had a heavy influence on the genre. And the 70mm aspect ratio, which we now know as IMAX, has inspired many, many talented sci-fi directors working today. Before discussing any sci-fi film, I felt that it was so important to recognize 2001 as Space Odyssey, especially looking at how the genre dominates at the current box office landscape. And with directors like Denis Villeneuve, Christopher Nolan, Steven Spielberg, recently James Gunn with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, currently my favorite film of the year, it's a character study on a talking raccoon. 
no other film genre can really get away with it like sci-fi can. Stanley Kubrick showed the possibilities are endless with the sci-fi genre, and it can offer things that no one could ever imagine. Thank you.